God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I remember um, meeting with my spiritual director, uh, and after a, a time of prayer together and some conversation, I dutifully tried to sum up what we'd been exploring. So if I'm hearing you right, you're saying something like, trust myself, trust my gut, right? A look of abject horror spread across his normally placid features. His brow furrowed, he raised himself up, balled his soft hands into knobby fists, and his normally sing-songy voice dropped an octave and turned into a growl. No! Oh dear, I thought. <laughs> I've really stepped in at this time. What do you mean, no? I asked. He said, don't trust your, don't trust your guts. Your guts are full of a word you can't say from the pulpit on Sunday. I came back, well, if I can't trust myself and I can't trust my gut, who can I trust? Yes, yes, he said. Who can you trust? See you next month. One of the first things we need to, to look at as we embark on the path of discipleship is our whole idea of, of spirituality as a self-improvement project with ourselves and our efforts at the center uh, of everything. Take a moment and make a quick list of all the things you want to improve yourself, about yourself, your hair, your waistline, your bank account, your car, your house, your kids, your parents, your anger, your grief, your loneliness, on and on and on. Each of us has things in our life that present us with apparent problems that need fixing. And how do we fix it? With, with effort, with willpower, shoulder to the wheel and nose to the grindstone. How many times have we made New Year's resolutions on December 31st only to discover that a few days later, I guess weeks if we're really driven, diligent, and willful, uh, we're out of gas, broken down the side of the road with steam hissing from the radiator? How many times, indeed, have we left a Sunday service with something like, I have to do better at fill in the blank. I have to work harder at fill in the blank, ringing in our ears. The trouble with having our efforts, our willpower, our work at the center of the spiritual life is that it can go one of two ways. Either we succeed and are proud of our efforts, uh, and look down our nose at people who aren't working hard enough at the spiritual life, or we fail and decide that the whole spiritual life just isn't for us. We leave intimacy with God, the birthright of each and every one of us, without exception. We leave intimacy with God to the so-called experts, the saints, the mystics, the spiritual athletes who we can admire from afar, put on pious pedestals to piously marvel at. 
the parable of the Pharisee and the publican gets right to it when we hear Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. If we think of the spiritual life as the pursuit of perfection that comes as the result of our own efforts and we make some progress by application of will, we tend immediately to take credit for it. Thanking God we aren't like those poor schleps right, who can't uh, straighten up and fly right as the old Andrews sister song goes. It's important to recognize that in this parable Jesus is speaking about two approaches to prayer. And if we pray, if how we pray is how we live, the point he's trying to get us to see is of potentially life-changing, life-reorienting importance. The Pharisee, it seems to me, is an unrepentant perfectionist who thinks he can be made right, justified by his own efforts and through the successful performance of prescribed actions. He fasts, he tithes, he's ticked every box, and he's even added extra boxes. And guess what? He's ticked those too. He's bought into the spiritual life as a self-improvement project. And he's getting the results he wants to see. Results he wants to see and results he wants others to see too. He's trusting himself. He's trusting his gut. He's winning and everybody else is losing. Thank God we're not like the Pharisee. By contrast, the, the publican standing far off in an echo of the prodigal son simply cannot get his ducks in a row. He is the guy who claps at the wrong time at the symphony uh, and has a mustard stain on his tie during the job interview. The second he opens his mouth, his foot is firmly inserted into it. He's a swindler, a cheat, a liar. By all accounts and by the always upward trending metrics of pharisaical holiness, a total failure. He has nothing to show for himself, not even a widow's might. All he has to offer up is his little poor self and to call upon the mercy of God. Ruth Burroughs, in her, her classic text, The Essence of Prayer, distinguishes prayer from achievement when she writes, to maintain this simple trusting exposure to divine love inevitably means resisting the temptation to make a success of prayer. To maintain this simple trusting exposure to divine life inevitably, inevitably means resisting the temptation to make a success of prayer. Burroughs is quite critical actually of techniques and methods of prayer for the simple reason that prayer begins and ends with relationship. A simple trusting exposure to divine love. A simple trusting exposure to divine love just as we are. 
not how we think God thinks we should be. Right here, just like this, however this happens to be. A simple, trusting, exposed, vulnerable, here I am. A simple, surrendered offering, warts and all, to God in trust. We rely, like the publican, not on ourselves, but on God. We trust not our methods of prayer, not our techniques of making our mind a certain way, but we trust instead in the love and mercy of God, whose love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. So if prayer is not our work, not some ladder we arduously climb to attain some exalted state, if prayer is not a Jedi mind control trick, what is it? Burroughs' simple but earth-shattering answer is prayer is God's work in us. Prayer is God's work in us. The Pharisee sees prayer as successful performance, something he can do well or badly, in his case, supremely well, poor fellow. The publican, on the other hand, knows that prayer is God's work in us. He knows that his job, his job, his only job, is to simply, faithfully, and as regularly as possible, dispose himself to the presence and action of God. His cry for mercy, like blind Bartimaeus, like Zacchaeus up a tree and out on a limb, like the ten lepers calling out from far off, like the fellow left for dead in the ditch, like the nameless, faceless woman with an issue of blood who reaches out to touch the tattered hem of Jesus' cloak in the throng of people pressing upon him. His cry for mercy is the little, tiny mustard seed of a yes, his consent that opens the door of his heart for God to do God's work in and through him. The healing stories that pepper Jesus' ministries are, are teachings essentially about the human condition. Without God, relying solely on my own efforts, I'm blind, lame, and leprous. Without God, relying on my own feeble efforts, it's abundantly clear, clear that I don't have enough energy to wind myself up to some acceptable standard, and even if I did, I would probably stuff it up anyways. Fortunately for me, for you, for us, our efforts are the very last thing Jesus wants us to rely on. Come to me, all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If this whole Christian thing feels tiring and tiresome, if prayer feels like work and like something you can succeed or fail at, it's a sign that we're trusting in our own efforts, that we haven't yet stepped into that early rain place 
where the threshing floors are full of grain, where the vats are overflowing with wine and oil. There are, after all, no perfect people, only forgiven sinners. And why not ditch that whole misguided attempt and let God do what God is literally dying to do in, with, for, and through you? The gospel tells us that it's at the feet of Jesus or letting Jesus wash your feet with his mercy and love, whichever you prefer, that we are loved into loving in spite of ourselves. We'll never self-improve our way to holiness, and we were never supposed to in the first place. Self-improvement, in fact, perfectionism, is a swarming locust, a hopper, a destroyer, a cutter. Our role is to recognize again and again our poverty, our littleness, our lostness, and yes, our need, our need for God. At effort's end, in the desert of the exhausted self, trying to earn holiness, trying to storm heaven, and make a success of the Christian life, we let ourselves simply come undone in love. We die to winning. And in our lostness, calling out for mercy in that far-off place, let God do God's work in us. Elsewhere, Burrow puts this same sentiment this way. It's all rather shocking, I must say, which means it must be good news, right? The way to holiness, she says, is not through dramatic renunciation. And holiness itself is not just for specialists, mystics, clergy, and religious. Holiness cannot be struggled for and won. It can only be given. And all that is necessary is that we should ask as soon as we cease to strive for virtue, concentrating attention uselessly on ourselves, and instead recognize our weakness and need, the way is open. The way is open to encounter God and the holiness of Jesus, which is his gift. It's in accepting ourselves just as we are, in embracing our littleness and our need for God's transfiguring grace, that whatever holiness God needs to work in and through our hands and feet and heart will be done in God's own time. In littleness, in actually embracing the thing we've been running from the whole time, our imperfection. In losing at the game of winning, we open the door that grace might sneak in like a thief in the night and rob us blind, rob us blind so finally we can see. Soft, pliant, reliant, needy, calling out for help, we're finally disposed to the Spirit's work in us. And in that middle-of-the-night place of simple, trusting exposure. 
to divine love, where children prophesy, where old folks dream dreams, where there is no slave or free. God's dream for the world gets dreamed through us. All that's needed is the recognition of our need. The humble, honest acknowledgement of our littleness. The rest, the rest, thanks be to God, is God's work in us. And so we can say with Zechariah, not, not by might, not by power, but by your spirit, O Lord of hosts. Amen.